The views of the sun capital disappear behind the marble birth of the palace as its gold-tipped spires. I pass through a set of gates, and the gardens unfold before me. A patchwork of neat flower beds, carved fountains, and ornamental trees. On the way, I receive a few greetings. A quick bow or curtsy, along with a murmur of sighted mistress. Others know that I don't care for formalities. Stealing down a narrow caretaker's trail on tiptoes, between the hedge maze and a row of newly trimmed begonias, I arrive at one of the palace's back entrances with only a bit of dirt on my slippers. Inside, every room and hallway is filled with chatter. A frown stitches itself across my face. I'm troubled by what I overhear, what I don't overhear. I ascend the staircase to the royal living quarters and the conversations fade away. The guards outside Cyrus's rooms look uneasy as I approach, but they don't stop me. I throw open the double doors to his bedroom. Do not let her in. Violet, leave. My eyes land on Cyrus by his wardrobe. The prince is dressed, mostly, and, ugh, handsomer than before. Cyrus Ladine of Albany is cut from the cloth of storybook dreams. Dashing, well-read, witty if he deigns to speak to you, and beautiful even without fairy glamours. He could make a sack look fashionable, and his smile is responsible for more fainting spells than the summer heat. Now, at the wane of his nineteenth year, he's filled out his height, muscles smoothing out the angles of his adolescence, his clothes no longer pinching at junctures since he's done growing. Colour has returned to his cheeks, once porcelain pale after a bout of childhood illness. He shed his boyishness with a fresh cut of his copper hair. But some things never change, including the disdainful gaze he levels at me as I do not leave. These months apart haven't tempered the loathing between us. A lifetime apart wouldn't. You can't come barging in here, Cyrus starts. And yet I just did, I murmur, glancing around the room. I'm the only other person here, which is a problem. The bed is unrumpled. His bath seems empty. I saw no retinue downstairs, no court ladies huddled around some latest addition to Sun Capital Society, so it begs the question. Where is she? Cyrus turns to the mirror and resumes buttoning his vest. Who? Her future majesty. The girl you're marrying. None of your business. I march over, braid swinging. Entirely. I wedge myself between Cyrus and the mirror as he heaves a heavy sigh. My business. If I wasn't underfed during my early childhood, I might have grown enough to be eye-level with him. As it is, he's a hand taller, and I have to jut out my chin to glare at him. I foretold that you would find a bride, and here you are with no one in your arms. Do not make me a liar. Then you shouldn't have lied. My eyes narrow. Cyrus ignores me, shrugging on a bird-patterned jacket. It was just a small lie, something to smother talk. Last autumn, there were reports of fairywood turning black near the borderlands, of blood-red rose petals blowing through the villages at night. People were getting anxious so King Emilius asked me to search the future for any clues or elaborations about Felicitas' prophecy. But my nights were fruitless, my dreams frustratingly empty. So as Cyrus left on his tour, I made something up to calm the court. Prince Cyrus will meet his bride before his journey's end. A small lie goes down like overwatered wine. You hardly notice it, and if you do, it isn't a big enough problem to complain about.'